Welcome to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. I'm here with my co-host, Chase Cooper. This is episode two. We will be discussing stress, nerves, and anxiety. How are you, big guy? What's happening? You know, I've I've uh, I've been told that nerves are bad. What uh, I, I never believed it, but uh, you know, a lot of a lot of kids and parents and golfers think that nerves are bad. What do you think? Yeah, they are not. And by the way, neither is anxiety. It's just a matter of how they impact our performance. And we know for sure that the difference between stress, nerves, and anxiety does have an impact on performance. But I hope one of the things that the listeners will understand from this is that um, feeling any of those or experiencing any of those is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just more important that we, first of all, understand them well enough to be able to um, understand the difference between them and then perhaps respond to them a little bit differently. And the good news is that the responses are pretty simple if we know how to train ourselves to pay attention to them and get ourselves to where we need to be. So one of the reasons many people, as you're alluding to, um, oftentimes struggle when they're feeling nerves or perhaps anxiety is that they are trying to fight it, uh, which, as we know, is one of the least productive responses to it. So we'll get to that when we get to, to responses, I'm sure. Sure. So let's let's talk about myths. What's the, with regards to stress, anxiousness, nerves, anxiety, and nerves, what are some of the myths that you've heard in your industry that are just not, not true? Well, unfortunately, my industry, that being performance psychology and performance neuroscience, you might say, some of those myths have come from those areas and unfortunately been proliferated into some of the misconceptions that oftentimes trip up people when we're trying to perform at our best in the places that are most important for us. What I would start with is probably just talking about the word stress, nerves, and anxiety are not synonyms. They are not the same word. Oftentimes we use them interchangeably and that impart that misconception. You know, when people say, oh, I'm nervous, you typically, the first question I ask is stressed, anxious, or nervous, just to try to help um, separate the two or the three, excuse me. Um, stress by definition is a measure of duration and intensity of demand, right? So let's say, for example, you were in the weight room, lifting a hundred pounds is more stressful than lifting 50 pounds, assuming you're going to lift it this, with the same exercise and the same amount of reps in the same form, et cetera. Or for example, if we're talking golf, a more difficult golf course being perhaps it's longer or there's more bunkering or the greens are smaller and faster and more undulated is more stressful than a course that is perhaps less demanding. So the human body and our nervous system in general is designed to respond to stress and it's pretty good at doing so provided we are not overstressed and under recovered. Having said that, if we respond to stress, uh, in ways that are not super productive, that stress can be something that trips us up. So one of the things that I think just to start with is an understanding that stress is not necessarily nerves and stress is not necessarily anxiety. Stress is a measure of the demand that we are under. And when we go play golf, we are signing up for some level of stress in that there is some level of precision required, some level of duration and intensity of demand that we have to meet. And by the way, this goes for pretty much every area of our lives. We have very few areas of our lives that have no stress whatsoever. So US Open type conditions could be a 10 out of 10 on a stress level. But, you know, the your home golf course, the course I grew up 
at home, not necessarily a stressful environment. Now it can add, we can add, I guess I got to be careful with my definitions, but, or my terms, we can add anxiousness, we can add anxiety to it. And that can cause us some, lots of issues, but we can be of, we can have stable confidence as we'll talk to uh, talk about a lot on here. Um, but still be in a very stressful situation. Yeah. So stress does, is our level or stability of confidence is not to determined by stress. Our response to stress might indeed impact okay. our stability of confidence. So like you said, if you're going to be performing in front of a variety of people, let's say you're at a U.S. Open, uh, the men and women are getting ready for U.S. Opens this month, playing on an a golf course that is designed to be specifically more demanding than most golf courses in front of a lot of people who are going to be making judgments and with actual competitive strengths about what score you're going to need to shoot to be able to make the cut or contend in the tournament, etc. It's designed to create stress. That's what it's for. Competitive stress is, is a good thing. Again, there's such thing as overstress in our lives, but the whole point of us training our skills, trying to get better at them, or training our bodies, or perhaps training our minds, is that we become more adapted to dealing with stress. This is why if you were training your body for a marathon, you would train for it for a long time because running a marathon would put a lot of stress on your body in the same way that if you're going to play in a U.S. Open, those conditions are going to test your physical skills, your psychological skills, your core strategy, et cetera, and put stress on them. And the degree to which you've trained them and the permission with which you give yourself to use them is going to determine how you're going to respond to that stress. So again, we oftentimes use stress uh, interchangeably with the word anxiety. I'm feeling stressed yep. is, is a feeling for sure, but we want to make sure that we're picking apart. Am I feeling stressed? Meaning I'm feeling there's a lot of demand on me. Or am I feeling anxiety, which by definition is something else we'll get to in a second here. So right. again, it's important for us as human beings to understand that like stress is, is an important part of our environment day to day. And it is something that we do want to systematically put ourselves under pressure in because that allows us to deal with more stress or perhaps we might say more intense or stress that lasts for longer durations or requires more precision in the environments where outcomes matter to us most. So uh, a stressful, healthy situation would just be a demanding situation. Like we yeah. are being asked a lot, like an air traffic controller is being asked a lot of themselves during, you know, at Atlanta or wherever, a busy airport. So they, you know, they may feel stressed, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are anxious. Correct. We do know okay. that because if stress and anxiety were the same in stressful situations, everyone would act and respond the same way or everyone would yeah. feel the same amount of anxiety or, or even nerves with that. But the bottom line is if you take you and me and we go play every golf course in the world here, you and I are going to experience the same stressful conditions, but how we respond to that stress is going to be different based on our psychology, our competency, our skill sets, our strategies, our under our knowledge, et cetera. Yeah. And so we as human beings, I think what's important for us to really understand about stress too is that we need it in order to make progress to grow. So if we think about how our nervous system works and how our brain is designed, think of it kind of in three, like if you're looking at a target, there's like a bullseye, which would be a dot in the middle or a circle, and then rings around it. In the very center of that ring, the most fundamental of human psycho-emotional needs is safety. And so when things become too stressful for us, we are overstressed, meaning the demand in the situation outweighs our ability to be able to handle it. For example, if you're under, 
know, if, if I was under 500 pounds of a squat bar, my muscles are not trained in a way anymore to be able to lift that weight, in which case I would be overstressed and my body's going to do what it needs to do to try to bail out of that. Right. Psychologically, it's the same. If I put you in a situation where you are beyond the point that you're, that the, or the situation is so stressful that it's beyond your competencies in whatever areas to be able to handle, uh, our nervous system and our brain is designed to find ways for us to be able to eject back into our safety zone, right? That's just how our brain works. It's a safety first mechanism of the umbrella for our brain. The purpose number one in everything is survival at all costs, right? What stress allows us to do, though, is to build a tolerance to things, to thicken our skin to stuff, to get stronger, to become more knowledgeable. But that requires us to sit in it for long enough. You know, for example, we'll use our uh, physical strength as a as an um, as an example here where we might go, OK, Chase, if every time you were doing push ups and your muscles started to burn under the stress of that resistance training, even just a little bit, you stopped you wouldn't get any stronger, right? Right. But if when your muscles start to burn, they start to fatigue and you continue to try to push out some reps until the point where, you know, you might have a certain amount of, you know, we would say to failure or close to failure. What happens is because you're sitting outside of your comfort zone or outside of your safety zone for long enough, your muscles have the chance to break down and then rebuild and get stronger. The same thing also works for us psychologically. If we put ourselves in situations that are a little bit outside of our comfort zone, or perhaps sometimes a little, a lot outside of our comfort zone, our tolerance to stress starts to increase, provided it's not so much that it ejects us back into our comfort zone, and provided we have the ability or the willingness to sit in that discomfort and under that stress without ejecting long enough, which, by the way, is difficult at times for us, again, based on how our brain and nervous system are designed to respond to feeling feeling overstressed, not necessarily being overstressed. And right. then, of course, if we go too far into that where the demand, the stress of the situation is too high, then we start to employ a variety of different strategies to try to get us back to our comfort zone. One of those strategies, by the way, is anxiety. So if we need to create more stress, how as our listeners being golfers, how do you recommend we we bump it up a little bit? Yeah, and it usually involves us, on, on the, if we're just talking like a general rule of thumb, it's us engaging with the things that are uncomfortable and difficult and perhaps slightly threatening to us in ways where we can just sit in them just outside our current level of either comfort or competency. You know, for example, that would be creating practice drills where you have a level of failure that is actually higher than we would perhaps like. You know, if you're practicing putting, for example, practicing three footers where you knock every single three footer in for three hours is not stressful enough that it's testing your skills in order for them to be able to adapt or for you to be able to learn to adapt your ability to read greens and read speed and execute a putting stroke in order to do so. You know, hitting the same club over and over again on the range to a favorite yardage or a favorite target, doing so repeatedly, is just it, the practice is too comfortable for us. What that might look like on the course if you're practicing is like, for example, playing best ball is a very comfortable game for people because you don't have to really live with the shots that you don't like, the non-functional ones or less functional ones. Playing worst ball with two balls for those who have time to practice on the course and aren't... Um, and have the time and ability and the and the, not the ability, but at least the availability to do so 
is far more valuable practice. It's less comfortable and it forces you to have to face a lot of the things that you don't like. Like, for example, if you want to play shot from a functional area of the course, you're going to have to hit two good shots in a row, quote unquote. Those types of things apply stress in the exact same way that if I was in the weight room or if I was trying to increase my flexibility, I'd need to push it to the point of a certain amount of discomfort, perhaps, and sit with that discomfort long enough for my muscles or for my nervous system to start to adapt. So if we're really talking about what stress allows for us is if we allow ourselves to sit in stress for sometimes extended period of times, depending on what's happening. It allows for adaptation because our body and our nervous system have to adjust to the current level of stress. Hence why if we have stress just outside our current level of stress, oftentimes, again, our our nervous system will adapt or our skill sets will need to adapt. And if we allow for that and even engage with it systematically, like that's where growth comes from for us as human beings. And the great news is if you understand this process, you can get better at anything perhaps not as fast as we would like all the time, but systematically engaging with stress, uh, we would call this systematic stress inoculation in psychology, meaning I'm putting myself under stress on purpose, just past my comfort area, or perhaps sometimes much past my comfort area and doing so with a willing engagement and without ejecting from it. um, That's how we get stronger, how we get better. So, you know, you mentioned not ejecting from it, not avoiding it. How do we, how do we, give me an example or give, give our listeners an example of setting in stress. What does that look like? Yeah. Uh, for example, let's, I'll use a, a popular example right now is, um, there's kind of a bit of a, a trend with cold exposure right now, for example, like taking a cold shower or an ice bath. Right. And the research around it is still formulating. Most of the studies are with um, small sample sizes, and it's not that you can't see meaningful effects in small sample sizes. It's just the likelihood of you finding the the measurement you're looking for with a small sample size is higher. But there, because of this trend, there's going to be a ton of research. What we know about the research with when we sit in stress, like we might just say sitting in discomfort too. So stress for us is oftentimes just uncomfortable emotionally uncomfortable, physically uncomfortable, cognitively uncomfortable, et cetera. What happens when we sit in that discomfort or that stress for a little bit, or for perhaps playing a worst ball instead of a best ball, where you're having to really engage with something in a way that is uncomfortable is that our nervous system shifts and it kind of tips the scale toward, you know, if we're talking on just basic levels toward pain first. And our, our nervous system works on this teeter-totter, like a back and forth, like a level. And when we systematically tip it toward discomfort first, it forces adaptation for us. Meaning, for example, if I'm uh, sitting in cold exposure, like I'm sitting in an ice bath for two or three minutes, my nervous system is is responding to that cold, which is immensely uncomfortable for most people, myself included, in the same way that if I'm pushing a certain amount of reps and really trying to get toward the closer to failure, my muscles are starting to burn, et cetera. So it's putting demand on my nervous system, on my body, on my skills, et cetera, past the point where just having them is enough. Like you actually have to sit in it long enough, right? And then what happens is there's it allows for the process of adaptation to respond from there. So for example, if I'm sitting in cold water, one of the things we know when we get out is that we get an extended release of norepinephrine and dopamine, which basically means effort and focus for an extended period of time. So when we allow for ourselves to sit in stress, 
or discomfort long enough, when we tip the pleasure, when we tip the scales in our nervous system and our body toward pain first, we get a longer and more in-depth snapback of what we might say pleasure or what we might say like benefits afterward. Right? This is the opposite of what happens if like, let's say, for example, you never did anything uncomfortable all the time. You would always be tipping the scales toward what feels good all the time. But the bottom line is you're not getting any type of snapback effect that is allowing for adaptation or what your body and your nervous system will be adapting to is a smaller and smaller and smaller threshold for discomfort and stress, not a higher one, right? And so what that looks like for us is essentially, can I engage with the things that are uncomfortable for me to a degree that then allow my nervous system and my body and my brain or perhaps to stick with something long enough to adapt? And then oftentimes we get the long-term benefits. That's our muscles rebuild faster and stronger. And oftentimes we get hypertrophy and uh, hypotrophy. If it's something like studying by like actually staying engaged with studying when you feel like you'd rather be watching Netflix, what happens is you are starting to expand your ability to focus on something for longer. You're also teeing up your nervous system to reward you for effort and engagement rather than bailing out and picking what's easy. And of course, if we're talking about golf specifically, the more we allow ourselves to be in stress without ejecting from it, the more capable we are of doing that when the option to eject isn't there, which would be like playing a competitive round. Or if the option, or if you were to take that option, it would cost you on your scorecard. So like in that case, would you say that the brain views, obviously views stress as a, as an initial threat, and then you surviving the stress, as you say, sitting in it, the brain is more likely to, to, take a deep breath and say, okay, I didn't die from that. Now I can grow and learn and and be okay with it a little more next time. Perhaps. Um, And there's certainly a level of that. I would say initially when you're just talking about stress for our nervous system and for our brain, it sees it as discomfort or perhaps we might say uncertainty or something. It really sees it as stress. And the thing is, as we're alluding to and getting to here, Chase, like we have a variety of different responses to stress some of them are based on our brain's innate design and some of them are based on the imagination we create about what it means if we were to sit in that uh, discomfort for longer which brings us to to nerves which is our nervous system's built-in default response to stress so if we think about stress again as a duration and intensity of demand particularly physical demand we might use an example of If I put you in a situation that has enough discomfort, enough uncertainty, and your nervous, your brain is pretty sure you're going to need to be able to withstand something for at least some period of time, it makes sense that our brain and nervous system has a very fast default response to do that. And that is nerves, otherwise known as our fight, flight, or freeze response. Really important about our fight, flight, freeze response it is not necessarily a fear response because you can fight, flight, or run from things that are not necessarily threatening. One of the things that you're alluding to, though, Chase, is that our brain, particularly the fastest and strongest parts of our brain that also run our nerves or this nervous response, it's a stress response, not necessarily a threat response. But those parts of our brain are terrible about deciphering between what's a real threat and what's a perceived threat. And so as you were talking about earlier, yes, we can most certainly perceive stress 
as a threat, even though it may not be. Hence why we have this built-in response in our nerves. And our nerves, by definition, is actually a physiological cascade of events. So what happens is I'm now engaged with something where there are meaningful results for me when they actually count and there is some level of stress involved. Again, stress is not a bad thing. What it means is there's some demand, some duration and intensity of demand when outcomes matter to me. And in that response, when our brain recognizes that, which it's pretty attuned at doing so pretty accurately, it starts this cascade of physiological events that starts with the, uh, the release of a stress hormone called cortisol. Again, stress hormone, not necessarily anxiety hormone, but stress hormone. And when cortisol is released, it essentially activates our sympathetic nervous system. Sympathetic nervous system is the, I guess, the part of our autonomic nervous system that gets us ready to fight, flight, or freeze. So it's going to be that uh, the heart rate goes up. And if our heart rate goes up in order to move that uh, blood that our heart is moving, our breathing rate must increase. And if our breathing rate increases, essentially the reason our uh, breathing rate and heart rate increase is because in order for us to fight, flight, or freeze, again, to meet the demands of stress, all of the blood that's in our abdomen that is running our digestive units and protecting our vital organs, it's far better, it's more useful in our limbs and in our brain. And so it's being pumped very rapidly from our abdomen out to our arms and legs and head. And that's the, the visceral feeling of butterflies in your stomach is that blood moving out very quickly from basically from our gut oftentimes and again around our vital organs. So essentially stress oftentimes triggers our nerves, which again is a fight, flight or freeze response, not necessarily in response to threat, but in response to demand. And in order to meet that demand, it's going to get us jacked up. You know, the, re the analogy I use when I'm working with the younger kids is it's like the turbo button on the video games. I used to play NBA Jam when I was a kid and you hit the button and their shoes became a different color and all of a sudden they were way faster higher. and they jumped higher, right? It's the same thing. Your brain, your body is really trying to get you to be more athletic in case you might need it. And so we have this increase in heart rate, increase in hormone uh, release, which is that cortisol, increase in breathing rate. And because our blood is now more at the surface of our skin than it is necessary in our abdomen, we tend to get pretty sweaty, hence the nice pit stains that we get when we get nervous. And also there's a bunch of blood that goes to our brain to try to fuel it looking for potential threats. And so if it feels like it finds potential threats, again, real or perceived, that's where we're kind of at a bit of an inflection point where we can tip into anxiety if we're not paying attention. But overall, nerves are very much a good thing. They make us more athletic, more aware, more alert, very much awake, which is very important for us if we're trying to perform well. And if I just took people and made them nervous, they would perform well all the time. In fact, one of the things we know about flow state is that we are far more likely to experience flow state when we are nervous because there's a level of neurochemicals in our brain, mostly dopamine and norepinephrine that are creating a significant sense of alertness. Key here, alertness for the present moment. Right. So our nerves are a response to immediate stress, whereas anxiety doesn't quite live in the time frame where nerves are quite happening. So we'll just pop a timeout right there. So we've covered stress and we've covered nerves to a degree. Let's make sure we fill in any blanks before we keep moving.
Yeah. So before I move on from, cause you and I have talked a ton about anxiety and nerves. We, this is the first time that we've, I've, I've really heard you talk on stress. Um, and so I've written down a hundred things, but I've got three kids. I, I say, I, my wife and I have three kids mm-hmm. and she's the stress, she's the stressed out one with our three little kids. And so whether this is golf, whether this is a stay at home mom, whether this is, um, you know, a CEO of a fortune 500 company, there's a ton of people feel stressed out all the time. Right. What is, um, what are one or two quick little things that you recommend? And they may not be quick, but what are one or two things to kind of tie up stress? Like how do we handle, what's the best way to handle stressful situations? Well, there are a variety of different, uh, methodologies I would always recommend to people first is making sure that you can identify the difference between stress, nerves, and anxiety. Stress is a part of our lives. Like our lives are designed to be demanding. And if you are going to have kids, if you're going to play golf, if you're going to run a company, as you said, like you're signing up for stress in the same way that if you go to the weight room or you get into an ice plunge, you're signing up for stress. The human existence is oftentimes filled with stress. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. We can get better if we engage with stress, provided that we can, we have some strategies to handle it and we can recover well enough. So to get to your question in the long term, which we will get to sleep in future podcasts, I would recommend. But one of our strongest uh, um, methodologies, again, based on just how our brain and nervous system are designed, one of our best stress responses is sleep. If you're getting eight hours of sleep a night, and I know for many people, it sounds like I have to devote eight hours of sleep a night. Our human brain was designed to sleep for at least eight hours per night. And everything during our sleep, everything in our body and nervous system is restored, rejuvenated and replenished while we sleep, including how we experience psychologically and emotionally stress, right? So if you really look at what human growth is, it's stress, sometimes systematic, sometimes not, learning how to manage and coexist with that stress and navigate it, and then recovery. And if we're looking from a a more modern performance model, part of the reason you have things in the NBA like load management and you have pitchers on pitch counts and golfers are not beating a thousand golf balls day in and day out anymore is because we know it overstresses the body, it overstresses joints, and then we have injury and all this stuff, and you can't recover at a fast enough rate to be able to do that. So understanding recovery with stress is super important, and then understanding the difference between stress, nerves, and anxiety allows us to then know what navigational tools are best for us. What I would never recommend to anybody is always avoid stress, what we would want to do is manage stress just as there's such thing as hitting too many golf balls, working too many hours, or perhaps lifting too much weight or stretching too far. When it goes too far, obviously we can't recover fast enough and then we become overstressed. Um, if we don't know the difference between nerves and anxiety, oftentimes we create more stress, more demand than actually exists. And we as humans are actually pretty good at dealing with stress as long as we are not making it more than it really is in our imagination, which basically creates, um, it's a formula for kind of destabilizing confidence too, if we're really talking about performance, especially on the golf course. So we as humans were designed to, to handle a certain amount of stress every day. Yeah. Um, a certain, it's, it's healthy. It's not have to, it's adaptation. I, yeah. I, I love, um, not avoiding stress. Um, I think that 
I think most people, me included, would um, confuse a lot of times stress with anxiety. Um, and I, like I said, you and I have talked a ton about nerves and anxiety. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to the, you know, to, to diving into that here in just a second. But I keep writing down stress equals demand. It's just, demand. there's a lot of demand on Fortune 500, you know, executives, on golfers, on on, on mothers of three dads, on mothers of three yeah, yeah uh for sure yeah. um so so nerves um you know i wrote down flight fight fear um flight flight and freeze for oh nerves. freeze yeah not fear freeze. yeah flight yeah. perhaps flight, in response to something fearful but oftentimes Correct. not necessarily yeah. um and so a lot of times i'll get I'll get parents that come in and say that their kids are, you know, have have their head cases, right? You hear it all the time, their head cases. And I'll ask them on, you know, first he jitters, you know, do you, do you get nervous? Nope. Don't get nervous. I'm like, mm -hmm. no, really? And, and, and I love having the conversation with him that, you know, we perform better when we're nervous. That's like speed and Adderall and all these drugs combined into one and you may you may say i'm wrong on that but like all these drugs that get us to focus and get us to to have energy and all this stuff is like is what our brain is naturally doing when we're in that nervous state am i am i right right on that very similar um so things like adderall or other drugs that are pushing focus many of them are trying to fill in perhaps um a neurochemical deficit in a brain for example now if uh I, who does not have ADHD, took Adderall. That would be like um, super focus for me. Yeah, right. There's a downside to that, so I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. For However, sure. when we are nervous on a neurochemical level, level, what we're experiencing are high levels of norepinephrine. That's adrenaline, so that's your energy, and high levels of dopamine. And you put those two together, and that's nerves. On a neurochemical level, though, the difference between nerves and anxiety is the removal of dopamine. So if I just eject, you know, people say like, oh, they're adrenaline junkies. No, they're not adrenaline junkies. They're adrenaline and dopamine junkies. This is why being on the first tee and being nervous actually feels really exciting, feels pretty good. The, the, the neurochemical addition of dopamine, dopamine is this um, neuromodulator in our brain that makes effort and challenge. So here we're talking about it makes stress feel pretty good, right? So think about all the times in your life where you've felt nerves, but there's been a level of excitement under it. That's the dopamine, right? And then the energy that you're feeling that is creating that increased heart rate and everything is the response to cortisol and, nor and norepinephrine, which is adrenaline. So energy and focus and motivation is what you're really talking about with nerves. Where nerves and anxiety separate, oh, by the way, I should mention that nerves and our response to them are run by the fastest and strongest parts of our brain. So for anyone listening, if you were to make a fist with one hand, that if you were to just kind of think about that as the parts of your brain that run nerves, we would also call this our old brain, meaning it was around long before the younger and slower parts of our brain. This is what runs nerves. So again, part of it is that's why they come on so quickly is that it's run by the fastest, strongest parts of our brain. But this is also the part of our brain that doesn't necessary, necessarily differentiate between what's real and what's only perceived. Anxiety, on the other hand, comes from a different part of the brain altogether. If you were to take your fist, which is your old brain, and wrap your hand over it, kind of cover it, that would represent your young brain. So that would be like our prefrontal cortex and our neocortex for us as human beings. This is what allows us to think rationally, think um, 
consciously, to think creatively, et cetera. You know, this is the part of the brain for us as human beings that really differentiates us from a lot of other species on the planet who can't think as deeply or as imaginatively as we can, although there are some, but not nearly to the same power that we have. Anxiety comes from this part of our brain. And really what happens is we start imagining a future that doesn't quite exist yet that includes things that are perceived as threats to us. So we put ourselves under some level of stress, or perhaps that level of stress is just the idea of, and fill in whatever blank, making a mistake, failure, being uncomfortable, the idea of being under stress and having to perform under that stress. And our brain starts filling out all these what if, what if scenarios, well, what if this happens and what if this happens and what if this happens, right? And so the upside for us and our brain in that capacity is that we have the ability to imagine the future and to plan for it and perhaps navigate it more effectively because we can think about it beforehand. So what that means, if we're going back to our layers of how our nervous system works, is it offers us the opportunity to think about what it would like to be moved from our safety zone, our comfort zone, to our growth zone and go, how do I want to do this in here? What could this be like? I'm wondering what's out here and maybe I can explore this a little bit. The downside is if we start imagining enough scenarios in the future where things are awful enough and we don't pay attention to those are that are those are just ideas about the future and start treating them as facts or precursors to those things actually happening, that part of our brain starts to send all kinds of signals to the fastest and strongest parts of our brain, which again, doesn't know the difference between what's perceived and what's real and assumes those things are going to happen, in which case then our nerves have just become anxiety. Anxiety by definition is worry about the future. So there is a fear element to it. There's an avoidance element to it. And it's ultimately what happens is when we do that long enough, the fastest and strongest parts of our brain start to actually shut down the rational thinking, conscious thinking, slower, weaker parts of our brain. And if you do that for long enough, that's when you get panic. So if we're thinking about kind of gradients of stress, you have stress, which is just the demand, both internal and external. Then you have nerves, which is our built-in response to stress. Then you have anxiety, which is how we are projecting the future in a threatening enough way that we feel the need to try to save ourselves from it, which basically, if we're, again, we're talking about our layers of um, nervous system response, it is going from growth zone, like, hey, I could sit in here for a little bit to, oh, no, 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 you better not. So anxiety is a defense mechanism for us. It's our imagination's kind of way in our brain's way of trying to save us from something before it happens to the point that it wants us to eject to our comfort zone, which and it will get into the layers of anxiety where eventually like anxiety becomes the comfort zone, in which case then we're not really free to explore and sit in stress long enough without ejecting from it. And then if you do that for long enough or in your, so if you have enough stress and enough anxiety that we have created, then you're going to get panic at the end of it. And panic is just a full blown get back to the safety zone and what by any means necessary, um, which again, super helpful for us when we're in situations where life and limb might be at stake and surviving period end of sentence is the utmost is kind of top of the no, top not, of the priority top top of the priority list. But in situations where we are trying to do more than than just survive, but to actually thrive, obviously those responses are less than than efficacious for us. Like they can actually keep us from performing well.
And if we think about what stable confidence is, it's kind of the opposite of anxiety. Stable confidence allows us to explore uncertainty. Anxiety does not. It wants us to fill in uncertainty. The challenge for us, though, is that the future is always uncertain. And so if we're unwilling to let uncertainty unfold, that is essentially the formula for anxiety. And one of the things we do know about anxiety is it will disrupt your performance in a negative way, different than nerves. Nerves typically doesn't because we get more athletic. So the types of disruption nerves might create is, well, I hit the ball a lot farther when I'm nervous because there's your adrenaline and your dopamine, right? So it's actually making you a better ball striker, but you would have to adjust your strategy based on that. Or, you know, um, performers in other sports tell me like, I have to just make sure I'm feeling like I'm slowing down a little bit when I'm nervous because I am actually going faster because I've got more energy and more focus to do so. Anxiety, on the other hand, again, it's built on avoidance and resistance and fear. And so by definition, when we are anxious, our thoughts are about trying to avoid a future that we have deemed to be threatening enough, although often in our imagination and never not as much in reality. And then by definition, you're going to be multitasking between avoidance and pursuit. And it doesn't take a psychologist to figure out if you understand anything about our brain. If I give you any human being on the planet two tasks, avoid what you have told yourself must be avoided because you have imagined a few terrible future if it happens and pursue the task at hand in front of you right now, our brain is designed to choose avoidance and it does so very quickly and very effectively. And so with nerves, we are able to be present much more easily because our brain, our brain and body and nervous system are going, whoa, this matters right now. What do you want me to do with it? Fight, flight, or freeze. So there's an urgency for now when we are nervous, hence the excitement. It's like, well, what do we want to do? There's a curiosity. There's an exploratory nature to it. Anxiety, on the other hand, is avoidance, resistance, and fear. And it's all about avoiding the things that we don't want to happen. And we know from a variety of different research in different areas, even some specific to golf, that anxiety will, first of all, disrupt the sequencing of physical motions. Meaning if I have a physical skill set like a golf swing, it's going to get out of sync and I'm going to be moving areas that are less effective than others in an order that is less effective. Two, we know it disrupts our ability to apply the appropriate amount of force. In a sport like golf where distance control matters an awful lot, particularly around the greens, uh, this is really important and obviously can be super disruptive to our performance. And it makes it more difficult for us to narrow our focus to a specific external target. And again, with nerves, although our the blood flow to our brain is trying to activate it to look for threats, if we don't imagine any, then we can actually prioritize the task at hand, which is to get this ball from where it is now to whatever chosen target we have, in which case then our ability to focus on a target becomes far less disruptive. Anxiety is not. Your brain is already perceiving threat. And so it will over-perceive a bunker over here or water over here or the idea of this ball missing the cup or someone saying something as something that is worth protecting itself from. And then so the idea of, well, I'll just start it here and pursue this target over here. Our brain is in a, in a neurochemical state where it does not prioritize pursuit over avoidance, hence why it's really difficult for us to focus on what it is that we actually want to pursue. And these types of uh, disruptions play out in a variety of different things. So if you were a public speaker, you would have difficulty formulating your ideas. You would have difficult time organizing your thoughts. You also might be rushing really quickly. So you're applying too much force to speed and not enough to cadence, et cetera. 
If you're a musician, you will play notes too hard or in a sequence that isn't quite right. So as much as I would love to tell you, anxiety cannot keep you from performing well. That's not true. It actually does. It keeps us from pursuing as effectively as uh, we are capable of. Now, to be very clear, feeling some anxiety, particularly when we are under stress, is super normal for us as human beings, but it, not necessarily helpful for us. And so the danger of using the word stress, nerves, and anxiety interchangeably is it makes it seem like, well, if I'm stressed, I must be anxious. Or if I'm feeling nervous because of stress, I, I'm also anxious. And then there's a negative connotation to anxiety, not just for us internally, but also kind of culturally and, and in the performance realm. And so if I can't differentiate between those two, the intervention I might give for myself might not be the most effective one. And oftentimes what we do with anxiety is we try to fight it by turning it off and trying to tell ourselves to relax, which is just about the worst thing you could do. It's funny. On that note, I was talking to a bunch of kids, uh, high school kids, six months ago or so, and their parents were there. And one of the one of the parents raised their hand and said something about, you know, when my son's not playing well, how do I get him to calm down? How do I get him to, you know, to to get rid of his nerve? She said nerves, but she meant anxiety. And I said, I asked her, I said, what's a fear of yours? And she said, public speaking. And I said, so this was a Saturday. And I was like, all right, Monday, you've got to give a speech in front of your colleagues, in front of a thousand of your colleagues on a subject you don't really know that well. You're not over overly prepared for. How would you feel? She goes, nervous as hell you know she goes i'd feel scared to death and i said okay so now you're locked in you're you're you know you're you're in the middle of your speech and one of your biggest fears was to go kind of have brain fog and go kind of brain dead and not be able to get the words out and i said now instead of a thousand listeners or a thousand people in the in the audience there's ten thousand people i said now your son's sitting there saying mom it's okay you're gonna be fine just just breathe just calm down just, just calm relax down. yeah just relax you know and she just started laughing she's like okay i get it you know um I've, I've written out a ton of stuff. Obviously there was, there was a bunch of awesome information there. Um, I wrote down number one, our brain, our brain's ultimate purpose is for survival, right? It is to keep us alive and nerves is the brain's response to a perceived threat. Potentials perceived threat. So I would say our nerves are our nervous systems response to stress. Which okay. may which may include a real or perceived threat. Well, and Doc, where I'm going with this is like back in however long ago when we were on this, when we, we were first developing, you know, and I, I wrote down, um, you know, you said nerves is part of the old brain, the fist. And I, I wrote down, I said, why so powerful? And the mm -hmm. reason I think it's so powerful, and we've talked about this, is like that rustling noise that cavemen heard in the, in the, the, the jungle the brain's got to be present there and figure out what it's going to do. Is it going to freeze? Is it going to fight? Is it going to flight? And there's no, um, there's no time there for it to create another reality or to create, you know, what happened in the past or what happened what could happen in the future. It's got to make a, a, a decision. And so that's where, you know, adrenaline comes in. That's where dopamine comes in and it's got to be grounded, present, focused, all the buzzwords, to make the right decision to keep, to keep, you know, said person alive. Am I, am I, am I wrong on any of right. that? So again, let's say you go back 20,000 years for us as human beings, we would get nervous in response to perhaps a threat, like 
the proverbial saber-toothed tiger or, yeah, right. or something else. But we would also get nervous in pursuit of the things that we wanted and needed, right? So it wasn't just perhaps fight or flight or freeze in response to, uh-oh, don't get eaten. It was also, there's food over there. We got to hustle over there and get it before it's not. So again, yep. there is a presence to it, and it's not necessarily in response to a threat. It might yeah. be, but it's not necessarily that. What? Where the threat comes for us now, because we live in a world of abundance, and we are not, the vast majority of us do not live in a world where life and limb are at stake anymore. So most of what we are trying to avoid is things that we perceive to be far threatening than they really are. That's embarrassment, judgment from others, poor golf shots, frustration, right. anxiety, oftentimes right. our own thoughts even. And so you're right on track when you're going like, of course, we needed the fastest and strongest parts of our brain to have this default setting go really quick because it helped us survive by either avoiding what needed to be avoided danger wise or by pursuing what needed to be hunted or gathered or um, any other resource that was going to allow us to survive. Right. And by the way, we also needed to be nervous in, in uncertainty. So again, there's a part of us like, please don't get eaten. And by the way, you should make sure you're eating and you have a mate. But then there's also, we got to figure out what else is out there. And yeah. so I need to be ready for that uncertainty, ready to act, to fight, flight, or freeze in that. Hence why we can be nervous under stress and in uncertainty and in, the, in our growth zone where we can be uncomfortable. And if we can sit with those nerves long enough, they can help us navigate things particularly physically, right? as long as we don't go, uh-oh, I'm nervous, now this is trouble, because then what happens is now we're starting to create anxiety. Does ex so a couple, a couple of things that came to mind, like I'm thinking about like near car wrecks that people have, have seen everything slow down and mm -hmm. like been able to avoid and like, oh my gosh, that could have been really bad. And like that, those kind of situations that, that keep coming to mind. Um, how did we get to a point... I was going to say, ahead. before you get to that, so that's mini flow state, dude. Again, yeah, right. exactly. we are far more likely to experience flow state. Flow state is the optimal state of human functioning where our focus, our energy, and efforts are synced with the current stressful demands, right? Yep. Whether, threat, whether threatening or not. And what happens is, like you said, because we are so synced with the moment and time as it's actually playing out without dwelling on things that have already happened or yep. being preoccupied with an imaginary future that doesn't exist yet, the world feels like it slows down for us. Which, by the way, we can train this ability to be present more often. And to what you're alluding to, the opposite of anxious is not relaxed. That's why if you tell yeah, somebody right. you're anxious, be relaxed, that's not yeah. the opposite of anxiety. The opposite of anxious is grounded in the present, which yeah. allows you to be in this optimal state of human functioning where your nervous system, your body, your muscles, your cardiovascular system are all in superhero mode and things are playing out and you're allowing uncertainty unfold in front of you. Like you said, you get in a situation where people are like in some what might actually be a super life-threatening situation and they make super calm decisions. They're crazy composed. They're crazy yep. athletic. They're lifting cars off of things, or they make a split second decision that allows them to thrive or allows them to survive something dangerous. That's different than those are nerves. That's not anxiety. Anxiety is, dear God, please don't die. And I've played out of several scenarios where that might happen to the point where I probably will avoid the thing altogether. Or when I get into it, I will do it in a way that's trying to ensure an outcome rather than allow for outcomes to unfold.
Yeah, I think back, um, you know, my, my wife a couple years ago had a issue with somebody having a heart attack kind of right in front of her. And yeah. like, she talked back to like how calm and collected and it was like, right. she didn't have it. It was almost like she didn't have a choice. It was just like, what do we got to do? We got to do this, this. And luckily she's in the medical field. So she was trained to do some of that stuff where like you, you, you compare that to somebody that's got the chipping yips and has to hit a big chip shot in a, in a Monday night scramble in front of a bunch of bunch of their peers. And I mean, it is a complete, that's complete anxiety. And that is Correct. the brain saying, let's get this over with as quickly as, as possible as and possible. basically, basically avoiding it at all costs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and what you're, what you're highlighting there, Chase, is the difference between nerves and anxiety. One where your knife, your wife is in that situation. Perhaps there is some life and limit stake for that person. Right. Maybe not for her, but the thing is, so she has some level of competency and training to prepare for that level of stress. And because she's nervous, but not anxious, she's actually engaged with things as they are playing out, which allows her to make clear, calm, composed decisions. Right. So my guess is if you had set her up with some type of heart rate monitor or breathing monitor, they were, her heart rate was probably through the roof. Her breathing rate was through the roof. Yet she's, yet she's composed. Right. So physically, and, she's clear. Psycho- she's, and she's physically present. and psychologically, she is jacked up, but she's yep. grounded. Versus the chi- the the a chipping yip or a putting yip is I find this situation in my imagination so threatening that the parts of my brain that go, well, this is super dangerous. Again, they don't understand the difference between real and perceived, at least not very clearly. So if I tell them, tell that part of my brain yipping a chip or whatever is an absolutely unacceptable outcome and it will be the worst thing in my life you're communicating to your brain some future imagination of worry about the future again unwillingness to let uncertainty unfold because i need to know it's going to go okay and the only way our brain really knows best to make things quote unquote safe is to eject and with the case with the yips there are two kinds kind of there's the Super jerky, get it over with as soon as fast, get it over with as soon as possible so I can get out of this discomfort, right? Like if you're experiencing the yips, it is intensely uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so your brain is going, well, get this thing over with, hence the involuntary muscle jerks. That is a full on threat response, dude. Or the other response we have, if many people have seen this, is the golfer that can't take the club back because there's two ways to avoid discomfort. One is get through it as fast as possible. Dear God, just get it over with. And then there's, well, just don't do it in the first place, which is full, which is preemptive avoidance, right? Right. And so even though our intent is, I would like to hit this golf shot down the middle, if I've told myself hitting a poor shot or having some types of negative, quote unquote, negative thoughts about it or feeling some types of nervous or anxiety about it is worth me avoiding this altogether, well, your nervous system is going to do what it's designed to do, which is like, well, let me save you from it before it even happens by just freezing. Hence, right. fight, flight, or freeze. But that's anxiety-driven avoidance, not nerves-driven avoidance. You know, we've talked about nerves and old brain. Um, you know, I've just written down a bunch, like, why anxiety? Why was in the new brain, did did we adapt, evolve, whatever you want to call it, into, um, you know, this ability to, to be anxious? Yeah. It's a survival mechanism for us. You know, most of our fear-based responses to anything are all survival-based. Again, super helpful for us in a world of scarcity and in a world where a lot of things were a threat to life and limb much more than they are now. Technically speaking, Chase, there's 0% of our brain that is devoted to thriving. It's all designed for surviving. We can use it to thrive, 
but that's not its original design when our brain was became what it became and it hasn't evolved much in many thousands of years so if many thousands of years ago you were worried about what's out there in uncertainty and in the stressful demands of the world it might save you from something and if you do that over a couple of thousand years then we develop the ability to be anxious about something and find things threatening that don't necessarily exist yet the other part for us now in a world of abundance and in a world where we're able to thrive is it becomes a negatively reinforced pattern for us negatively reinforced is a fancy psychological way of saying it feels to us like we are doing something and feeling like we are doing something oftentimes reinforces those patterns of thought and patterns of behavior like so much of what we do behavior wise is reinforced by what we feel about it not necessarily what we get from it again paying attention to our brain and our nervous system is designed to be sensory rich and causal poor meaning it pays attention to what we are feeling which is why when we feel nervous there's a part of us that goes uh-oh because our body is starting it's amping up its sensory experience trying to tell us hey yo it's time to pay attention not necessarily pay attention to the cause and effect of the world the same thing works for us with anxiety we start to feel stress that's our sensory experience telling us we are under demand in one form or another and anxiety for many people feels like i'm doing something to help meet that demand and specifically meeting that demand by trying to avoid stress or avoid failure avoid mistakes avoid the things that we don't want to happen and so it oftentimes becomes learned because we reinforce it in our brain the downside is again it can become really this the cause of stress rather than the response to stress for many people number 2 it definitely disrupts our performance there is an extended body of research in a variety of different performance realms and in other areas of our life that just show that us being under anxiety not just stress all the time super harmful for our performance can be really harmful for our health etc you know and then the other part of our about anxiety is that if it becomes a pattern for us it's oftentimes difficult for us to step away with it because we're not really sure what to do otherwise um the remedy to it as we'll talk about in many podcast episodes though is to be present more often and to be more accepting of the things we don't want being accepting on a neurological and nervous system level means sitting in stress and discomfort and uncertainty long enough for us to build that adaptive uh those adaptive mechanisms to it and being grounded in that allows us to actually focus on the tasks at hand that are happening when we are in that under that stress and again it might sound like wow raymond that's a big bridge to cross but that's those are the elements of flow state right and we don't need to be in flow state to perform well but it is a super valuable frame of reference for us that you know based on how our brain is designed that if we put it under stress meaningful stress and then allow ourselves to sit in that stress and focus on what we're doing and use the skills and adaptive mechanisms that we've developed it rewards us with great performance and something that feels really good really fulfilling but i would say for people to the downside with anxiety in the long run is that it creates burnout which is basically instead of the enjoyment of flow state and executing under pressure and dealing with stress in the ways that we're capable of doing whatever we do through anxiety you can do whatever you want if it's through anxiety it's going to be more aversive to us again because that's a mechanism of trying to get us to eject from 
discomfort and uncertainty and stress rather than uh, coexist. Well, and it's exhausting, right? Like it's absolutely exhausting. And, you know, I, I, I would say most of our listeners, especially, especially, you know, serious golfers have been told to stay present before one shot at a time. So I think the idea of groundedness won't necessarily be something that, that was new. Right. Um, but you know, and, and obviously anxiety is, you know, worrying too much about the future and, and coming up with fake narratives that, that don't really shouldn't carry as much weight as, or they're just not true. They're not, they're not reality, as you say. Um, so staying grounded can obviously help that the acceptance part that we'll dive into, uh, probably next episode. But the acceptance part is something that you talk about, have talked about ad nauseum that I had never heard. I'd heard, obviously, you got to accept the shot after the fact, whatever. But I had never heard of how important acceptance was before the shot even took place. And so let's give our listeners a couple of little takeaways of if you are struggling with high, you know, high anxiety, we got to work on being grounded. We got to work on being more present. Um, but touch briefly on acceptance and give them some takeaways that they can, they can start to work on their anxiety. Yeah. I'll define acceptance first for what it is. Again, so defining stress, defining nerves, defining anxiety is really important. Acceptance is important to, uh, accurately define as well so that we know what we're actually working toward or, um, to develop. Anxiety is not that we don't care about what happens. It doesn't mean that we're going to like what happens. Yeah. Acceptance. Sorry. My apologies. Yeah. Acceptance doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to like what happens. Doesn't mean we don't care. Doesn't mean we're going to be comfortable necessarily. Doesn't mean we're going to be certain. And it also doesn't mean that we're resigning ourselves to less. It's not a resignation. What it means is we're willing to, if in this case, in terms of the future and the remedy to anxiety, it's I'm willing to let uncertainty unfold which is a scary idea for us sometimes as human beings. If you've got a really difficult shot and the actual margin for error is pretty small for that shot and it's going to require, so essentially a very stressful golf shot, but I am unwilling to let uncertainty unfold, my brain's usually going to default to starting to fill in the worst case scenarios for it, in which case then I'm becoming the primary disruptor for my physical and strategic skills. So what acceptance means is we're willing to experience things as they are as they've been in the past, as they are currently, and as whenever they might be in the future. And because the future is always uncertain, the more I'm willing to experience in the future, especially the things that I don't like and might easily find threatening, the less my brain will feel the need to have to multitask with avoidance of the future. Even though there's stuff up there that we might not want, if I'm willing to accept it, Avoidance doesn't become my default strategy. So again, if we think about our nervous system in these three layers, it means when I venture out into my growth zone and I'm under stress, I don't create enough threat to make me eject back to my own safety and my own comfort zone so that I can sit in there long enough to go, okay, what do you want to do and how do you want to do it without going and the future could be this, and the future could be this, and the future could be this in a way that tells my brain, you know what, there is there is indeed a worst case scenario out there. You better jump back and get back into your safety zone and avoid it altogether. And so the bottom line is the more accepting we are of the things that we don't want, uh, the less we, our brain and nervous system feels the need to have to try to avoid them. 
and the reason that improves our performance and makes us happier, healthier human beings is because we're then free to actually pursue the things that we want. Not with a guarantee, but with an increased chance. And the bottom line is, if I told you, Chase, anytime you come to a stressful moment in your life, meaning there is some demand in a way that is important to you, instead of ejecting and doing things to avoid things and protect your ego or save yourself from mistakes or try to avoid failure, et cetera, you made a you were able to make a more conscious and intentional decision about what you wanted to do, what you wanted to pursue, and how you wanted to do that in ways that are authentic to you, you would live the most fulfilling life that you've ever had. And you're going to find out how good you can be at the things that are important to you. So that's a big, somewhat philosophical, but large-winded approach for the more that we start to accept the things we don't want, the less our brain starts to perceive them as threats. And the less it perceives them as threats and just part of the stressful environment and a potential risk, but not necessarily a real risk, one that is only imagined, we can be present when we are stressed, which means it allows us to be nervous. And you put those two things together and that's the formula for stable confidence, groundedness and acceptance. Well, I love the fact that, you know, we've broken down the differences between especially nerves and anxiety. I think that's such a big key. Obviously, um, you know, you talked a lot more about stress than, in, in, you know, in this conversation than we have in the past. And it was, it was very interesting. I, I always tell my students, I'm like, your intention has to outweigh your fears. Your intention has to outweigh, you know, the goal, what you're trying to do with the, the shot has to outweigh um, the, the worries about what may happen and what may not happen. And, you know, is that the the perfect way to say it from a, you know, psychological standpoint, um, it gives them to me, it gives them um, just the idea that like, what are we trying to do? I'm trying to hit it there. What's the worst that can happen? I, I may screw this up. Did I, am, is that death? Am I going to, you know, am I going to die because of it? No. Okay. So now what's my intention is to hit it there. Let's go. Let's see what happens. And the freedom to fail, the freedom to, um, to, you know, uh, just pursue and, and be, um, there's a word you use all the time, the freedom to, um, I'm drawing blanks on it, but, um, to explore the freedom to explore is, is so incredibly important. And, you know, you've introduced on time and acceptance to me and my students. And, um, it's, it's been huge for me in my game and it's been huge for them just to understand how often they're not on time and how often their lack of acceptance causes bad shots versus it just being a physical issue of a, a, a bad golf swing. And so I, I thank you for um, bringing a lot of this to light because it's the first time I've ever heard it and it's helped a ton of my students and I hope it helps all of our listeners for sure. Yeah. And if we pay attention to the fact that our psychology and you might even throw our neuro neurological state into that is again, the first or domino in the order effect of our physical skills, what that doesn't mean is that we go, okay, never feel anxiety. But what it means is if we go, okay, I'm feeling anxious, or if I know how to be present more often and increase my level of acceptance, I'm able to execute the things that I want to execute under stress more freely. And two things happen there. One, we typically perform better. Actually, three things. One, we typically perform better. Two, it feels better to us, and that matters. 
because the bottom line is if I told you, here's one way you can perform that is, doesn't feel very good. And here's one that does, you're going to gravitate toward the one that does simply because that's how your brain and body are designed. And it's more motivating for us. There's your intrinsic motivation, right? And then the other part is we can actually learn to get better faster because if I'm not creating the disruption to my own skills and strategies and they don't work out, it's not like we like that. But the bottom line is at least I have more objective and usable information about how to get better. But if I'm playing through anxiety, even if I have a wonderful sheet that perfectly lays out my stats, I don't know how much of that was technical disruption because I didn't execute very good golf swings or because I was playing through anxiety, which will disrupt my golf swing or my putting stroke or my decision making, et cetera. And so for us to be more accepting, which you put it into a wonderful phrase, which is permission to perhaps fail. Like if we're really talking about what stable confidence, it's far less about certainty of success as it is an acceptance of failure because you don't really have permission to pursue what you really want to succeed with if you also don't have permission to perhaps try and fail. But when we have that, all of a sudden, we can get better at stuff at a bigger clip and perform better under pressure because we're just not disrupting our own skills. And, and you mentioned it a lot too about with anxiety, um, the brain is going to avoid. And so when we are worried about hitting it out of bounds left on, you know, I think we've talked about 18 at Sawgrass a ton. If we're worried about hitting it in the water left there, one shot lead, one hole to play, the brain is just going to avoid left. If, if, if we're in a, you know, a highly stressful situation, which we are one shot lead, we're nervous, but we're also anxious about, cause we hit it left there yesterday on Saturday, you know, brain is going to avoid left at all costs, which is probably going to send it too far right and then cause us more harm than harm than good versus we almost have to tell ourselves what's the worst that can happen i may hit this in the water that's that's the worst that can happen okay can i can i live with that is that a um you know is that a life or death situation no it's not do i want it to happen no i don't want it to happen but it's i'm not going to die from it okay so now what's my target what's my line and let's let's let it rip and see where it see where it lands. And there's a freedom to that. Like you said, it feels good. And I've had a lot of feedback from my students saying that, you know, again, it was the the rounds of golf were less exhausting. I didn't get as tired playing golf this way versus the old way where I was I was playing in a, in an anxious state the whole time. And so I love the the freeing feeling it has. And and again, people that have played golf in anxiety. Um, you know, they've felt like they've been chained up the whole time. Like they're so worried about every miss and where it's going to go and this and that and this and that. And so to pre-accept it, to pre-accept the worst thing that can happen, again, there's a freeing feeling to it. And I just encourage our listeners to go out there and do it. If you've been struggling with the yips, don't avoid them at all costs. Like obviously there could be a mechanical stuff, there could be some mechanical stuff involved and we can get into that later. But um don't treat it as life or death. You may yip this next one, but give yourself the freedom to to explore and try to figure it out versus trying to trying to you know avoid. I, I I'm shrugging my shoulders for the listeners. It just feels like you're feels like you're getting strangled, you know. So don't don't be afraid to to accept the bad outcomes and don't treat them as life or death. And you'll start to kind of let go and be able to get through them. Uh, that is not to say that performing under pressure doesn't come with or under stress doesn't come with some risk. And we're not saying that golf shots aren't important or that winning tournaments aren't important 
what we're kind of communicating here is that there's a whole lot more freedom to play freely in those situations where the outcomes matter most to us when we're willing to accept the outcomes that we really don't want to happen. Because then if we do make a mistake, uh, it's not a self-imposed mistake and it's just kind of part of the performance realm, which again, doesn't necessarily feel good. But there's a certain level of distaste um, that comes in the form of us failing in most important moments of our lives when we know that we were the cause of why. Um, and as you said, there's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive, but there's a total, there's a, the difference between anxiety and nerves is oftentimes on a psychological level for us, the difference between constriction and space. Constriction is difficult for us to be able to execute within space is important, physical space, psychological space, emotional space. We need that space. That is us being in our uh, growth zone. We need that to explore that space there. Uh, when it gets constricting, it tends to squeeze us right back into our comfort zone, which really difficult to be able to perform that way. So nerves, anxiety, stress, nerves and nerves and anxiety are not the same. Nerves are good. Anxiety is bad. Anxiety is a, I'll clarify Anxiety is not bad. It's, it's not even really a negative thing. It's uncomfortable for us where I would say is it can, it disrupts our performance. Um, I don't want the listeners going away from this going, oh, if I'm feeling anxiety, that's a bad thing because that often amplifies anxiety. What we'd say is that's something that we would want to pay attention to that you're feeling anxious. And if we instead kind of allow for that, use it as a means to check our level of acceptance and to check how what time frame we're focused on, which is usually anything but the present, then we can kind of um, use that as a, an opportunity to kind of course correct and get grounded again. Um, but it is normal for us as human beings to feel anxiety. And if it's become a bit of a pattern for, for certain people, again, I don't want to label it as something bad um, because that, again, oftentimes what that does is it's just like telling somebody to relax, like, oh, oh, you're doing something. Bad. Right. So it's, the, the goal is more so to um, focus back to being on time, being grounded, being present, and then up and up your level of acceptance, as you say, marry acceptance versus, versus dating acceptance. Um, and if, and if we can do those things again, then we're tapping into, um, our skills and we can play free, stay stable, confident golf. Especially under stress, which by the way, you know, it feels really, really good executing your skills freely under stress. Yep. Yep. And you can't, and you can't do it being, being in the future, being in the past. You can sometimes get lucky, but it's never going to last over a, over a long period of time. You might, you might get away with it from time to time, but it's a low percentage play. That's for sure. All right. So doc wrap us up episode two. Um, there was, there's a lot, there's a lot of meat there for sure. And I, again, I think it's so important for our listeners to understand the, 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 what, the, why, the, how, like, how is our brain, how are we made? Why were we made? What's the, you know, what are the steps that your brain is going to take when you're, you know, um, in these situations? And I think it's so important to understand on a mechanistic level, as you call it, um, versus just telling y'all what to do and, telling you how to calm down and to be more confident it also just makes our responses to these things that much more effective if you understand a little bit about how your brain's operating so again instead of telling yourself to relax when you're anxious 
you might do like, oh, how about I can try to be present, which I'm sure we'll talk about how we can train in coming episodes. But, you know, the more we're aware of how our brain is designed and how our nervous system responds, then our psychology becomes more clear, not less clear. So with that, it's episode two. Chase, where can they find us? Uh, Chase Cooper Golf at Instagram. Um, they can find you at BTS underscore mindset on Twitter. Um, we are uh, GBTS, Golf Beneath the Surface podcast on Instagram. Um, and we'll probably start doing a bunch of more social media stuff up there, um, coming soon. Neither of us are big social media guys, but we're, we're, we're trying. Um, and, and again, for those of you just, just now tuning in, um, check out Raymond's put Raymond's book golf beneath the surface. Cause he goes a, into a deep dive on all this stuff. Um, it's still killing it on Amazon last I checked. Um, and it's a, it's a great read. So definitely check all that stuff out. Uh, please, please, please give us feedback. Let us know any thoughts, um, any suggestions you guys have, and we'll keep diving into all this stuff. Be great. Next episode, we'll probably start talking about stable confidence then. Okay. Thanks, buddy.